Hello. My name is Bonnie Grace Gilday Kennedy, and I'm the owner of Grace of Healing, where I serve as an Akashic consultant and healer. My intention for this podcast is to serve as an inspiration to you finding your own healing through self-love. Together, we will spend time exploring topics that lead us to a deeper understanding of what self-love is and what it looks like for each of us as individuals on our own journey. I am especially excited about interviewing inspiring guests whom have created great feats of healing for themselves through their own acts of self-love. Welcome to Episode 5 of Grace of Healing. Today's guest is a woman who has survived and is recovering from alcohol and drug addiction. She uses her own story to support and provide hope to others on their own healing journeys. I personally have found her to be honest, open, and brave. Her courage and strength have compelled me to put her in that special category as a badass woman. She supports others through her blog, Sober.Yogi.Me. She is the owner of Rebel Soul Yoga on Oak Island, and she manages the Facebook page, She Tribe, which focuses on women's empowerment. Today, I welcome Shannon Devendorf. Shannon, are you there? I am. Welcome, Shannon. I'm so glad you're here. Yeah, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me this morning. Yeah, I'm really excited. I've been thinking about this conversation and what we're going to talk about and what I think would be a really great place to start. Maybe some history from your childhood. Like, where are you from? How many children are in your family? Sure. So I am the youngest of two children. I was born in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, My parents decided that Chicago wasn't going to be a wonderful place to raise their children, and they took us to western Kentucky when I was a year old and my brother was four. My grandparents had moved there uh, maybe a year before, retired. My parents went down and visited. My dad fell in love and just knew that this is where he wanted to raise his children, keep them safe and protected, and nothing bad happens in the country, all of that good stuff. Yeah, and it was a childhood in the woods. (laughs) <laughs> by waterfalls and spin outside. Yeah, when you think about that time, is that what stands out the most? What stands out the most? Yeah, absolutely. Being outside. Yeah. Right? I love that. I love to play with rock families. <laughs> I love to swing in the trees. Do you consider yourself to have had a happy childhood? And when I think about my childhood, I, I do think of it as a happy childhood. I also think of it as a lonely childhood. So tell me some significant things that happened that um, have brought you to a place of a different understanding. So I'll just give you a little history of me and start. We'll go back to that childhood of being lonely. I was sexually abused at a really early age, which you know is a really important thing in my story because it shifted who I was and how I saw myself. So when you say that it shifted how you felt about yourself, tell me about that. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is 
the secrets, right? The secrets that go along with that. Um, it shifted how I felt about myself, how I saw myself. When you're saying it changed how I saw myself, that's what I want to know. Like, how did you see yourself? So up until that point, I had been extremely happy. I had been innocent and the universe smiled on me. And then when this happened, it was a dark cloud that made me feel dirty. It made me feel like I had done something wrong. It was shame, right? From a really early age, I had this secret that I carried. I feel like when I was around other people, I had this wound. I felt like everyone else was running and I was living to keep up. At that moment, I felt like I didn't really belong. Yes, one of the things I found to be true among survivors of sexual abuse is a sense of being wrong. A perpetrator betrays a victim's trust and causes harm. But the victim is the person who walks away feeling the shame and responsibility for the act. This perceived notion often makes victims feel different and as if their existence is wrong. That we are wrong, right? right? That something was wrong with me. Right. And I think that's part of the um, most difficult part of this is because because of that feeling, we don't really connect in with other people, right? Right. Because we're hiding something. And so from that hiding, I think there's a change in disposition. There's a change in the way we carry ourselves. There's a change in what we put out into the world. Um, And we start to, I believe, look like a victim, look like an easy target to, to the other people that exist in the world to hurt children. And so for me, this was something that went on throughout my childhood from different people. It happened again and again and again. You were sexually abused by other people? And so, again, that's just telling me over and over and over that there is something wrong with me. And that's the loneliness, right? That's the loneliness in this. Yes, it's so sad. I'm sorry that that happened to you. Part of the reason we're talking today is because you are in recovery. Absolutely. Successfully, you are recovering. Successfully. Yes. And that is so, it's like you have a bit of hope for something that for so many people feel so hopeless, right? Absolutely. I have hope tattooed on my hand. That's right where I can see it. It's an acronym for me, hold on pain in. And so it's a reminder for me, even, you know, when I'm struggling with anything mm-hmm. that we'll get through this and through worse. So tell me about when you had begun using. I began using alcohol at a very young age. I was I think eight or nine years old, my parents went to, they went to a lot of parties back in the day. It seemed like a lot to me, I don't know, cookouts, you know, just with their friends and there would be music and kegs of beer out in the country and other kids running around. And so I connected with another little girl who was about my age who wanted to go hit the cooler with wine coolers. I thought, wow, that's different. You know, I'd never done that and and I was afraid we'd get caught and we'd get in trouble and she assured me we wouldn't and so we snatched a couple of wine coolers out of this cooler and you know eight or nine years old tiny that's all it took was one or two wine coolers and I remember absolutely falling in love in that moment with the way I felt um I felt like I belonged I felt warm the music was amazing so you know whether I was born an addict it's 
genetic. I certainly have a family full of alcoholism and all kinds of addictive family members, you know, childhood trauma, just all of the things were all in place for me to be set up that way. And I, and I fell in love with it. And at eight or nine years old, it's not feasible that I'm going to be able to drink every day for the rest of my life. So it just kind of became when I could snag a beer from the fridge from my parents' house or dip into their liquor stash in the cabinets, stealing sips here and there. Uh, and then pot smoking began in middle school, and that was an every weekend thing, and I immediately fell in love with that and hung out with kids who were older than me, 12 years old when I started with that. And So did you advance into different drugs after that? I, I did. When... I was I was 14 years old, I think going into my 15th year, my mother got me a little job as a candy striper at the hospital in the town where we lived just because she didn't want me to be home, you know, bored all summer, I don't really know. And she got me this job where I went into the hospital and it was kind of cool for me at that age. It felt like a soap opera, right? I'd grown up watching soaps with my grandmother and and that's what it felt like being in there with all these doctors and nurses and it made me feel a little older than I was to be a part of their conversations and I actually ended up loving it and and that was the year I came into my power my sexual power and by the time the summer was over I had connected with a man who was in his 30s and formed a relationship with him 15 or almost 15. So hang on just a second Mm -hmm. so what do you think about that now? Oh, I think it's awful. So sad for that 14-year-old girl who felt so grown at the time. Right. Yeah. It makes my heart hurt for her that no one noticed this, that, you know, that this happened. Yeah, that's so very sad to me. Right. And, you know, in my mind, like I said, I had found my power, right? So this was me beginning to take my power back in not healthy ways. So this man introduced me to all sorts of new things, cocaine, pills, and he was a crack smoker. Got a firsthand look at, at you know, all sorts of things that uh, shouldn't have been present in my life, right? But a lot of cocaine, a lot of pills, a lot of alcohol at that time. And I was in a relationship with him for, I want to say, two years. What about your parents? Like, what's happening with your parents at this time while you're seeing this 30-something-year-old person? All right, my parents have no idea. It felt good to me to have this secret, right? This mm-hmm. secret that I wasn't supposed to have. That felt good to me. And I had boys that wanted to date me. So occasionally I would let them come and pick me up and talk to my parents and pretend that they were my date and then take me to see this man. If it certainly wasn't dating. There was no there was no dating. We didn't go places. Yeah, because sex was just a thing at that, but there wasn't any true intimacy, and because you'd been abused so young, it was right. just it was just the, an act of something it rather than just an act ways to get what I wanted. Yeah, that's just so sad to me. Yeah, it's sad to me too when I sit with it and hold it. Yeah. So after you broke it off with him, did you continue to get drugs and? Absolutely, I rolled out of relationship with him and right into a new one with a man who was maybe only 10 years older than me. And it was an abusive relationship. He had a lot of anger issues. It was a very unhealthy, volatile relationship that involved methamphetamine, cocaine, alcohol, you know, all, all of that on a daily basis. And we hung in there. 
for a year, maybe, I got away from him. That was good. And I guess now I was on my own, but not really, because I went from guy to guy to guy, whoever could get me high, keep me high. That's what my life was about, and that's all my life was about. When was the first time that you went into treatment? When I was 21 years old. Oh, so you had quite a, a amount of time from the first time you used until you went into treatment. Mm-hmm. I had a nice little stint in a behavioral health center at 17. Who put you in the hospital? My parents. Okay. And that was because of your behaviors? That was because of my behaviors. That was because I had picked up huffing spray paint and put that in a bag and inhaled that. And this terrified my parents more than anything else, more than any of the drugs I had done, more than the old men that I hung around. This scared them. This was something they knew was probably going to kill me. So you went to the Behavioral Health Center and you were treated for that, but your addiction wasn't addressed or they didn't know about your addiction? I don't so much think that they knew about it. It was more the behavior, the huffing, those behaviors that came with that. I ended up in the hospital first from several times from huffing in pulmonary care unit. And then the social worker comes in and talks to you. And so between my parents and the social worker, they found a behavioral health center for me. And I just don't remember that it helped me. But of course, I didn't want it to help me either. Yeah. So when was the first time that you actually went into treatment for drugs or alcohol? 21 years old. Okay. Was that in Kentucky? That was, I was living in Kentucky and I was working in a factory and I was addicted to methamphetamine. I was working third shift and the only way I could stay awake all night were uppers. And so many people in this factory were taking so many drugs. It was like heaven for me. The first night I sat down to have my lunch, people were trading pills back and forth. And I just thought, wow, this is the place for me. This is great. And it took no time for methamphetamine to take over my entire life. So I worked third shift. I volunteered. People took their overtime, took their weekends. So I was working 12 hours a day, seven days a week, just every bit of that money going to support my methamphetamine habit. Through dedication, right, until it became too much and the sleeping never happened and I just stopped going to work and locked myself in my... Did you ever experience psychosis during that time? Oh, yeah, I was out of my mind, absolutely. Yeah. And I had locked myself in my apartment for days, wouldn't come out, had curtains over my windows because I was so paranoid of who was lurking around outside. When you think about yourself at that time, I mean, that's got to be painful to to know what you were doing to yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. It was not a good time. It was not, you know, this is not being 21 and having fun and going to parties. This is sitting at home, hiding from the world, slowly killing myself. Wow. So, yeah, so that's, that's painful. And I went, my mother came to check on me. 
and was just, I think, aghast when she came and saw my apartment. There were no light bulbs in any of my lamps. So I was sitting in the dark. I had taken all the light bulbs to use them to make into pipes to smoke methamphetamine. And I probably weighed 90 pounds. My skin was covered in sores from methamphetamine, from picking my skin. And she talked me into going to a treatment center in Tennessee, a 12-step treatment center in Nashville. And I went. It was Cumberland Heights. I felt good to be there. I was happy to be there, but I didn't feel like I belonged there. Is that just a continuation of not feeling like you belonged anywhere? Or was that just your addiction saying that you were different from other people? I mean, can you help me? A little bit of both. Mm. You know, I was certainly the youngest person there. Most of the people were there for alcohol addiction. I didn't see myself as an alcoholic. Today, in hindsight, I can see that alcoholism was present really early on in my life. It's just that methamphetamine took over, and nobody's really looking at any of this other stuff anymore. It's like, let's fix this thing that's going to kill you. So it was a combination, I'm sure. But what I do remember is that I felt good. I ate, I slept, and it felt really good. And I had a little bit of hope, but I also had no desire to go to meetings every day for the rest of my life. It just wasn't anything I wanted to latch on to. So I felt good while I was there. But I was 21 years old, and it was the 4th of July weekend when I got out of that treatment center. I probably lasted two days before I ended up buying methamphetamine and taking off right back down that road. Yeah. How many times have you been in treatment? I have been in treatment one, two, three, four, five, maybe six times. And when was the last time? My sobriety date is November 13th, 2013. So that's seven years ago. And so tell me about how that experience was different. So here's the thing. So the methamphetamine, I went back to treatment for that at 23 years old to a place. You know, I did that from 21 to 23. And I went away to a treatment center to a long-term treatment facility. And I was there for four months, stayed and worked for two months. I met my husband there and started a whole new life. So at that point, I never picked up drugs again. So when I talk about five, six treatment centers, three of them were from for drugs, for methamphetamine in particular, or two of them, I'm sorry. Um, and then I never did drugs again. So this started a whole new chapter in my life, and the rest of the treatment centers are alcohol. So I had these years of being married and having this young family. We had a daughter. We had a son. We had this life. And all of a sudden, it was also clean. I had met him in the treatment center. So there was this point of, wow, we're young and we live in the city and we have this great life. Why don't we ever go out on the weekends? We're not alcoholics. We're drug addicts. And so that started the alcoholism back. I had had this period of being clean and being so. And so for me, it would be a wild night, a great time. I would be drunk. For him, it was completely different. It triggered him back into his addiction. He would disappear and go find drugs. And that began his relapse. So what about you? So about me, I spent that marriage, the rest of the time we were married, I spent the rest of that time trying to wrangle him in, trying to get him back off drugs, trying to get him back to that place where I had met him and put our little family back together. And then when it became clear that that wasn't going to happen, I filed for divorce and took my children to protect them because I had lived that life as a drug addict and there was no way I was going to put my children through that. 
and so I changed the locks, filed for divorce, and and that was it. Our marriage was done. And at that point, I picked up the alcohol as a as a coping mechanism. Right? This is a clear defining moment to me where I would put my children to bed and start drinking because that's all I had. I was lonely. I was heartbroken. Afraid? Afraid, absolutely, because now I've got these two children, and I'm 27 years old, and I can't afford this house that we live in, and all of the things, absolutely. And I reached out to a gentleman in North Carolina that was a friend of mine, a friend of my husband's, because this was the other thing I knew how to do, right? Reach out for a man. Mm -hmm. And so I reached out to this man in North Carolina who came down and visited me. I call this the booty call that never ended. He's raised my two children. We have a child together. He's never gone away and has been with me through so much. So since you've been with him, have you been clean and sober? No. And, And when I moved to Oak Island with him, not long after that, probably within six months that I moved here with my children, he and I began our relationship together. And I tell people when I tell my story in a 12-step meeting that on Oak Island, alcoholism can really go unnoticed because this is a vacation place. People come here to party. They're here for the week, and then they're out. And we had a steady stream of people coming to visit us, and, and the alcoholism went unnoticed until it didn't, until the blackout started happening. The behaviors crept back in, and there was a morning at... I put my children on the bus and all the morning routine things, which happened at 6 a.m., came home, back to the house, and I want to make a drink, but my bourbon is gone. And I start to look around, and I notice that my keys are not where they should be. My wallet is not where it should be. And it occurs to me that my husband has taken all my things away from me. I did this thing where I would drink at him or any situation that made me angry because that was all I had called a girlfriend to complain to her to just be mad at my husband for hiding my bourbon or pouring it out, whatever he had done, for taking my keys in my wallet. And her response to me was, why the hell are you drinking at 8 a.m.? She decided I needed to go to a meeting, <laughs> an AA meeting. And she got off the phone. She looked at the schedule and told me she would be there to pick me up. There was a meeting at 9 a.m., And so I got ready, and she called back a few minutes later and said, oh, never mind, I forgot that my car's not at home because I didn't drive it home last night. As it happened, she called another friend of ours who came and picked me up and took me to an AA meeting. And I drank my Mike's Harder Lemonade all the way to the meeting, to the church, before I got there at 9 a.m., which was a really interesting experience to be at my first AA meeting at 9 a.m. drunk. All these old men just were so kind. I was so angry at all of them. I was angry at myself. I was angry at the situation. And in that, you know, I didn't get sober that day. I didn't get sober for another year and a half. But that started that journey into recovery for me. I had a therapist who would never tell me I was an alcoholic. But she did think I drank too much. So she was very pleased to hear that I had gone to a meeting. And people around me just began to assume that this meant I wasn't drinking which I really liked and kind of let them think that and started to hide my drinking. And so when you're hiding your drinking, you can drink anytime you want to, as often as you, because nobody knows, right? Mm-hmm. Just what I thought. And what happened to me in that is that it made me black out. It made me crazy because my 
there was never a time that I didn't have alcohol in my system. I didn't eat because my calories were being replaced by alcohol. So I was sick. I was losing weight. I was just unhealthy. And during this time, I bounced in and out of some psychiatric hospitals. Why? Fights with my husband. My husband, I was I was violent. The alcohol, usually in blackouts and only toward him. All of the anger that I had, I was full of anger. And it all came out at him. And so he, it was a little bit... I don't want to say scared of me, but, you know, I was really violent and scary. So there were episodes with him. I jumped out of a moving car when he and I and the children were on our way to Virginia to see family because I had a drink in the car. And it was one of the times when he thought I wasn't drinking. He thought I was sober because I was going to meetings and I had a giant cup of bourbon and he grabbed it on this road trip to take four Advil, took a swig and realized, oh my gosh, she's got bourbon in the car and he threw my drink out of the window. And at that point, I couldn't imagine going on this trip with no alcohol. So I jumped out of the car, bailed. And as I did, a state trooper was passing us. He stopped the car, the state trooper turned around. It was just, it was a really bad, horrible scenes. Again, my children were in the car when this happened. They saw the state trooper take me away. I went to the local hospital where they kept me on suicide watch for four or five days and released me to a mental hospital. So there were several instances like that. I was taken out of the house by EMTs and delivered to the ER by ambulance because my alcohol levels were so high, just ridiculously high all the time. I got DUIs. You were on a very clear path to removing yourself from this world. I definitely was. Yeah. Wow. So how did you finally get sober? So I finally got sober after this year and a half of these meetings, these bouncing in and out of the psych wards, the ERs, the medical detoxes. I ended up at, and and this was the third treatment center in that year and a half. I'd gone to a treatment center in Virginia. I'd gone to a treatment center in here in North Carolina, I want to say Greensboro. And then I ended up in Wilmington, which is 50 miles away from where I live. And this time my husband didn't even come inside with me. He just pretty much dropped me off at the front door. See you later inside and crawled on the couch in the waiting room and passed out until the intake people came and got me and there was no more fear anymore there was no anxiety about this stuff it was routine I knew how to be in these places I came in and detoxed for five days I think four or five days they give you these great drugs to detox on phenobarbital everyone walks around kind of out of it it's lovely, and then the day comes when they take all of the drugs away. When that day came, what I knew for sure and certain was that it was time. I had seen that my husband was over it. I had seen that he's not going to keep putting up with this when he dropped me off and drove off without me. My two oldest children lost their father to an overdose, so he never figured it out. He never came back from, from that relapse. He continued on down that path. And it eventually took his life. So my children were going to lose me, that they weren't going to have a mother in this world. And they already didn't have their father. And so that morning, while everyone else was playing ping pong and playing foosball and doing all the things people do in treatment centers, I asked if I could have a room to myself to just go and sit. Or I could just go and sit by myself. 
and they unlocked a room for me. I went in and and I just sat and I tried to meditate. I didn't believe in God, so there was no reason for me to pray. I didn't believe in anything, but I had this amazing therapist who promised me and promised me and promised me that meditation was the way that this meditation was going to help me. It would be my medication. And I had faith in this woman, in this therapist. Well, you know what I I find very interesting as you tell this story is that you didn't have enough value or worth for yourself to get better, but you loved your children and they have so much worth to you that you were willing to do it for them. That's exactly right. And so today that is not lost on me. It was completely lost on me at the time. Yeah. Yeah, but that's exactly right. I I didn't think I was worth living. It didn't matter to me if I lived or died, right? I was not worth that. I wasn't worth anything, but they were. I didn't care about myself. I didn't care about my life, but I cared about them. And so when people say that to me, you have to get sober for yourself, I I don't always agree with that. I think that comes later, Mm -hmm. and that's it. And I sat in meditation that day, and knowing that, this is it. I have got to do this or I'm not going to live. My children aren't going to have a mother. And I tried to meditate in the way my therapist, who's now my yoga teacher, the way she had taught me. And I might have been able to sit for three minutes by myself without jumping out of my skin. And that was enough. That was enough. I connected to something somewhere, something inside of me. I don't know what happened, but there was a shift. There was just a shift that day. And I did that again the next day. And I did that again the next day. And that has been a part of my practice for the past seven years is to take time in the morning to sit and to connect. And, of course, I've gotten way better at it, right? Not that I'm perfect at it because we never are. But but maybe one day you can just focus on exactly what it is instead of diminishing what you say because I think what you've done is incredible. And I don't think there's a right way to do it. So I don't think there's a wrong way to do it. Right. You know? Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So at what point during your sobriety did you begin to find Shannon, that person that survived all of those experiences that is connected to the divine? Where and how did you find her? Through meditation. My 28 days there, you know, it takes, it takes so long for all of that alcohol to leave your system and, and for the fog to actually clear. So it's just going through the motions, doing the things that I'm supposed to do, going to meetings and, and, and being at home and doing the routine things. Going to, to yoga was another thing that this therapist really was adamant I needed to do, and, and the treatment center offered that, so I started practicing yoga. And I hated it, and it made me cry, and meditation <laughs> made me anger. It told me that this is okay, this is the magic, this is what happens. And it just it made me feel again like I don't belong, I'm a freak, because I'm the only one in here crying and bawling my eyes out, And but I kept doing it. So there was something in there that, you know, said, no, this is what we're supposed to do. So I kept doing it and I hated it. I hated meetings, but I kept going. I hated yoga. I kept going. I hated sitting with myself. So I kept doing it and things came up for me. And it was through, through all of that, that I began to find myself and yeah, and really see myself and really see, you know, I had to work through the anger, right? I had to work through 
being a victim and being mad at the world around me for all of the things that had happened to me and make peace with that and make peace with myself. So when you see yourself now, Mm -hmm. who do you see? When I see myself, I see an incredibly strong, incredibly brave, loving, open, compassionate being. Do you love her? I love her all the world full. Yeah. I forgive her. She's been a real huge, long journey. Yeah. Yeah. But so beautiful, Shannon. So beautiful. There's so much there for, I feel like, that people can identify with. Part of us feeling so separate for our own reasons. This is about allowing people to connect in with your story and giving themselves permission to exist. And a huge part of my healing process has been writing, has been blogging. I have a blog. I have shared my journey, my story. I still do it. I write regularly. And it's been so healing to me to be able to connect to people, right? After feeling so, feeling like I didn't belong, feeling different, isolated, whatever, to share things and to have people send me a message to say, oh my gosh, me too. The same thing, the same story, this, you know, that I'm not unique, that I'm not alone, that other people have experienced the same things I have, that other people have these same emotions, these same feelings. To do that as an act of service, right? So people who are struggling can see me on the other side and say, wow, okay, maybe I can do this too. That's been powerful. It's been really powerful. Yes. I think sharing our stories is one of the most beautiful things that we can do for others and for ourselves because it gives us, when we speak our truth, it gives us permission to fully be who we are, to have the experience and the joy in not just living through whatever happens, but really finding space in there for the beauty of our story. Definitely. I'm just so filled with joy that you have been on this journey and that you have taken your pain and turned it into something beautiful for other people. I just don't feel like that there is uh, any higher calling than being of service to others. So I, I, I thank you for that. Absolutely. Can you give our listeners here the information so they can find your blog and your group on Facebook and I believe maybe some yoga studio information? Start with the yoga studio, rebelsoulyogastudio.com. We can find Rebel Soul on Facebook or Instagram. My blog is soberyogi.me. T-Tribe, I run this group for women that's amazing where we support, empower, encourage one another, share our stories, share our strength, and really lift one another up. So anyone can find that group. I just really want to thank you, Shannon, for being here today and sharing your story with us. Thanks for having me. So I really appreciate your openness with me and your, your bravery, you know, having the courage to keep going. It's beautiful. Thank you. For more information on self-love, the Akashic Masters, or this podcast, you can go to www.graceofhealingnc.com. Audio and music production is by Linda Go. To connect with her, you can go to kamalacove.org.